My name is uh, Chris Alden. I'm uh, running, uh, I'm with the International Relations Department and, and uh, uh, currently, uh, given that some of you are from the summer school, I'm running the Foreign Policy Analysis course. So welcome to this evening's public lecture. We're very pleased to have uh, all of you and I'm glad to see such a good turnout for what I'm sure is going to be a very uh, uh, interesting uh, uh, and very compelling discussion by, by Ambassador Burns. Um, if uh, if uh, he will indulge me to, to give a bit of your, your, your background. He's a professor of, of uh, practice of diplomacy and international politics at the John F. Kennedy School at Harvard University, director of the Future of Diplomacy Project and faculty chair for the programs of the Middle East uh, and, and India and South Asia, and on the board of the school's Belford Center. Um, Ambassador Burns has a very distinguished career with the, the U.S. Foreign Service for, for 20 years, uh, recently retired. Um, he, he's served as Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs from 2005 to 2008. Uh, he's perhaps uh, most well known for his negotiations between the United States and India um, on, on questions of the, of the nuclear uh, agreement. Um, he's also Ambassador to NATO, to Greece, and State Department spokesman. Um, He's, he uh, served under a, a special assistant to President Clinton and, and uh, then director of Soviet affairs with George H.W., the first George Bush, um, uh, and has a, and additional achievements. Um, uh, uh, Ambassador Burns has a, a BA in history from Boston College and MA in, his, uh, in international relations from Johns Hopkins University. Uh, those of you who are studying this, should get, this should be inspirational to you that, uh, that you can go far with this, these uh, international relations degrees. Uh, um, he, he also has a, 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 a certificate pratique de langue française at the University of Paris-Sorbonne. Um, and uh, tonight we'll be speaking about uh, the relationship between uh, uh, Europe and the United States, challenge, global challenges uh, uh, facing them. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. I just arrived in London about two hours ago from a week in Russia, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, and Sweden, looking at, um, with some friends, the big story of the last 20 years, the emergence of a new European-centered Baltic Sea as opposed to a Russian and Soviet-centered Baltic Sea. And I wanted to talk tonight about Europe and the United States uh, from the following perspective, I spend most of my time, as Professor Alden indicated, thinking about some of the emerging powers in the world. I'm going to India next week. I spend a lot of time there, focus a lot on what India and China, Brazil, the emerging global powers are doing with their foreign policy. I'm interested in that. I welcome their involvement as global leaders. It's inevitable it's going to happen. We live in a globalized world that requires more countries to participate in trying to resolve some of the really tough questions ahead of us. But I thought it might be interesting to look at the older powers for an evening. The United States, the European Union, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, and to assess where those countries are in terms of their power projection in the world, whether they're ebbing or whether they can continue to be vibrant actors in the world, and how these countries will interact with China, India, and Brazil, and other countries in the future. So that's my focus. I'm going to speak actually rather briefly 
because I always find in sessions like this, and certainly when I teach at Harvard University, it's always more interesting to hear what's on your mind, to, to take questions, and to hear other people's opinions. So I look forward to that very much. And I'll be very much open to anything you want to ask me about my experience in government or American foreign policy or anything I say with which you might disagree, and I'll bet there'll be some things that I say that some people here might object to, but that's in the spirit of academia. Let me begin as an American, former government official, now professor, to say something that's not particularly original, but I think it needs to be said. I'm a great admirer of Europe and the European Union. I say that in part because I served for 27 years in, um, in the United States Foreign Service as a career diplomat, so I worked for Republican and Democratic administrations. Uh, but the Bush administration, which was the last administration in which I worked, gained a reputation, perhaps undeservedly, for not being particularly pro-European Union or in favor of the European project. And uh, I don't think it's fair, but that was the reputation. So I thought I should say first, I'm an unabashed admirer of what the European Union has been able to create over the last 30 or 40 years, starting, well, starting 50 years ago with a European coal and steel community, and then the common market, and now the modern European Union, particularly its expansion into Central Europe, which has been so important for the people of Poland and the Czech Republic and Hungary, the Baltic countries, and all the others who've become part of the EU. I admire the e European Union because I can't find objectively another part of the world all over the world that is more democratic than the European space, that is more just in its treatment of its citizens, that has a stronger commitment to the rule of law, egalitarianism. I saw that in my visits to Stockholm and Helsinki and Turku just over the last couple of days. The European Union is an extraordinary success by any measure, political, economic, or military. I'm not old enough to remember the Second World War because I was born 11 years after its end. But I grew up with my parents and their friends and my aunts and uncles who were, of course, took part in that war and lived through it. And their reality, and of course the European reality, is many hundreds of years of fratricidal warfare in Europe, particularly in the last 100 years, enmity and the struggle for power between France and Germany. All of that has disappeared. War is unthinkable among all the countries of the European Union, West and East. And that is a revolutionary and positive development. And the fact that Europe has been able to produce this generation of peace, and what I hope very much will be a generation or two or three ahead of it as a peaceful continent, is something that Europe has never experienced as a collective entity. And then to see this extraordinary economic transformation the Schengen regime and the opening up of trade and of course the fact that 16 countries are now part of the Eurozone with more to come. Estonia, where I was last Friday, is joining the Eurozone later in 2010. By any measure, the European Union, I think, is one of the great historical events and accomplishments of the last 50 years. And I think historians writing well after we're gone will see it that way as well. I thought I should say that first. Now I'm in London. I also worked very closely with the United Kingdom during my diplomatic career. I thought I should say something about the special relationship. Because there is this view in Washington. I can't speak for the government in Washington. I'm a great admirer of President Obama, by the way. And I strongly support what he's trying to do, both domestically 
and also in the, new, the changes he's made in American foreign policy, which I welcome. But there is this rumor, not from the administration, but from, you know, the blogs and the commentators and the press that somehow the special relationship under this president is finished. I hope not, because I do believe as an American that the special relationship is actually vital for us. And it's important. I'm not trying to diminish the fact that we have very strong ties with Germany and with France and with Poland, three of the other great powers in Europe. But there's something about the fact that we grew out of Great Britain in the 18th century. And we share not just the common language, despite all the jokes that we're divided by the common language, we share a common language most of the time. But I found in my career that we share a common worldview and that Britain is still a country that believes it has the capacity to act globally. I can't say that about every European country. With the devolution of sovereignty to Brussels, with the, in my judgment, alarming reduction in many of the defense budgets, particularly in Germany, Italy, Spain, over the last decade or so, Britain is one of the few European countries that can actually think of itself as a global actor that can have an impact on the world, globally, on its own and in concert with others. That makes it uniquely valuable as a democratic partner in the NATO alliance where we are allied with Britain and 25 other European countries. It makes it uniquely valuable to the United States. There's a trust factor that I found in my career, both when I served, I worked for President Clinton in the White House, or when I worked for George W. Bush at the State Department. I found that when times were toughest, we might not agree with Britain, and they might not agree with us, but there was a trust that we could argue out those differences, that Britain could give counsel to the United States in a very frank way that sometimes other nations and governments were reluctant to do or didn't have the credibility to do. So I thought I should start by saying I'm a great admirer of the United Kingdom and also of the European Union. Now I know that um, this is an exceedingly challenging time for Europe. It's obvious. I don't live here but I visit as often as I can. I have a lot of friends here and talk to Europeans. You all live here, so you know it's challenging. The global recession has hit home and hit very hard here, as it has in the States. The debt crisis, I think, reveals a European Union that was suddenly unsure of itself. That took a long time to respond to the Greek crisis. As the Greeks kind of wondered whether Europe would ride to its rescue, it did eventually with that nearly trillion US dollar, I forget the euro figure, rescue package. But it took a long time. It took a long time for transport ministers to react to the Icelandic volcano crisis of this past spring. And as a friend of the European Union and, and of Europeans, I'm a little bit concerned perhaps by the effectiveness of crisis management, whether in the economic realm or in the realm of what do you do when you have to worry about shutting down civil aviation across the entire continent. Very sympathetic to these, by the way. Not that Americans are paragons of virtue or of efficiency. We have our own management and government problems in our own constitutional system. But I, had, I was surprised by the slowness to act of the EU in both respects, the economic debt crisis as well as the volcano crisis, and worried by it. Closer to home in terms of my home, I'm a former U.S. ambassador to NATO. I served there between 2001, just before 9-11, and 2005, and so I was around the table 
with lots of my European colleagues when we voted to put NATO into Afghanistan in 2003. And seven years ago, we had high hopes that we, were, we would follow the NATO creed, all for one, one for all. We all act together. We all voted to go into a combat mission to fight the Taliban and al-Qaeda. We knew it was going to be tough because even by 2003, it was obvious the Taliban was not finished, as some people, unfortunately and perhaps naively, believed in the wake of their defeat in 2001 and through 2002. They were not finished. Al-Qaeda was not finished. It was going to be a tough war on the Afghan-Pakistan border, and certainly where British forces came to serve in Helmand, where the Dutch were in Oruzgan, where the Canadians and Americans have been in Kandahar. It hasn't turned out to be an effective NATO mission, and that is most unfortunate for NATO. We are 61 years old as the world's strongest, and I think the world's most successful military alliance. Of course, we didn't have to use force, thank goodness, during the five decades of the Cold War because NATO's strength, Europe's strength, Canada and America's strength, was an effective deterrence against Stalin and Khrushchev and Brezhnev and the other Soviet leaders. We never fought a ground war in NATO's history until we went into Afghanistan in 2003. It's quite ironic. We were confident of victory because we did feel united in 2003 and we knew it was for a combat mission. We knew it was going to be tough. What has happened? Well, the majority of the Allies decided on their own that they weren't going to serve in a combat mission, despite the fact that that's what it's all about. Countries like Germany, most notably because it's the keystone country in the continent, it's the largest country with the largest military, the Bundestag passed laws saying German troops will not serve in combat. And so while, I don't know, 80 or 90 percent of the fighting has been along the border in the east, and certainly in those three provinces that I named Helmand, Oruzgan, and Kandahar in the south, that's where the casualties are. That's where the fighting is. Germany is in the north. It refuses to send its soldiers to the east and south to serve with Britain, or the Dutch, or the Estonians, or the Danes, or the Bulgarians and Romanians, Americans, Canadians who serve in the south and east. France has largely been in Kabul, and the Spaniards and Italians are in the west. And so we have a NATO alliance which is very much divided by this war. And I think it's a problem. It's an existential problem because NATO has always been, we all serve together, we stick together, we work together, we survive together. And now we have a bifurcated military mission where Britain is assuming too much of the responsibility. Thank goodness for Britain. As is Canada. As is Estonia. I was with some Estonian government friends last week, and they said Estonia has the second highest rate of casualties as a percentage of population in the entire alliance. They haven't walked away from that. So what does it say, I, I, and forgive me for speaking frankly, if you are German or Italian or Spaniard, I'm not trying to attack your country, and certainly not trying to attack the patriotism of your soldiers who are serving there. They're doing their best. But your governments are not allowing them to serve where the war is going to be decided, which is in the south and east. And I think that's a considerable crisis for the NATO alliance and a considerable challenge for countries like Canada and Britain who have sacrificed so much, as has my country, over the last seven years. So I would list those, the recession and debt crisis, the Icelandic volcano, the governance question about the European Union crisis management, and Afghanistan as challenges to Europe. We have challenges, too, in the States, by the way. 
I think President Obama has been responding to one in particular, maybe a crisis in confidence about American leadership in the world several years ago, or the unpopularity in some countries and parts of the world, not in all, of the United States. And I've been encouraged as an American citizen to see that President Obama, I think because of the way he's acted and what he has stood for and the way he's operated with other countries, I think that we now see a revival uh, in public opinion polls in most countries, but not all, of how people feel about the United States. I think public opinion is important because we are a democracy, as is Britain. We do derive our authority from the consent of the governed, and therefore we have to care about what people think, not just in our own country, but in other countries. That's been a challenge for the United States. We need to strengthen our diplomacy. I would say that we had every reason to go into Afghanistan after 9-11. In retrospect, Iraq was an unfortunate decision in 2003 for our country and for the Iraqis and others. We've tended to lead with the military and have the diplomacy play the backup role. Actually, foreign policy should be the other way around. Diplomacy has to lead. We have to exhaust through negotiation, through compromise, through talking, sometimes with regimes which we do not like at all. We have to exhaust the ability to resolve human problems peacefully and constructively before we turn to military force. It's not a revolutionary thought. It's actually one that's very popular in the military because I think they feel the same way. And I think what President Obama's been able to do is to put diplomacy back into the forefront of American foreign policy, which is very welcome indeed. Another challenge for us is one that we share with you. We have been rocked by the global economic recession. America's been very hard hit. We still have double-digit unemployment. I know because I have uh, soon three daughters who are in their 20s. My youngest turns 20 in a couple of weeks. The youth unemployment, especially for young university graduates, is quite high. Difficult to find jobs, the kind of jobs you want as a university graduate in the United States these days, even on places like Wall Street, which were hiring so many young Americans and Europeans over the last 10 or 15 years. And we face a particular problem. We've been spending too lavishly on our government budget over the last 20 years. We have an entitlements crisis. I won't bore you with the details, but we have these large government programs, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. If we don't do something to curb the spending on those programs, we'll be at Greece-like deficit levels in 20 or 25 years. And that's not an exaggeration. Our budget deficit as a percentage of our GDP will be at Greece levels unless we make structural changes to the way we provide services to our population. And these are difficult political choices, but we have a political system that's often in gridlock between Republicans and Democrats in Congress. So I thought I should list some of the American challenges because I was candid enough and perhaps risky, took a risk in telling Europeans what I think some of your challenges might be. We share many of the crises and challenges that you face. But I think our challenges don't, don't, don't stop there. Here's how I look at the agenda these days in international politics, both from an American and European perspective. I think it's the toughest international foreign policy agenda that Europeans, Americans, and Canadians have faced since the Second World War. Here's why. We're facing a global recession that has not yet ended. It's the most significant global recession in 70 years. Now, you can, when, you, when you survey economists, you can find that they're all over the place, left, right, and center, 
But you do have a number of economists, including someone I respect, Paul Krugman, Nobel laureate who writes for the New York Times, who believe that we may be heading for either deflation or a double-dip recession. We might get thrown back into a recession. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. I'm not an economist. I just listen to other people who are a lot smarter than I am on these issues. But I'm concerned by the number of very eminent economists who believe that we're not yet out of the woods. And so that's the first challenge that we face together. The second is that we find ourselves in two wars, particularly my country. President Obama rightly is trying to bring us out of Iraq, our combat forces, by the end of 2011. I think that's a correct decision. But he has put us more heavily into Afghanistan. I happen to agree with him, but we're now at 110,000 American troops. We have, what, 50 or 60,000 European troops in Afghanistan. We're raising the troop levels. We're raising the intensity of the fight. We're taking the fight, rightly in my view, to the Taliban and al-Qaeda, but it's very painful. June was, for the United States, the bloodiest month in nine years, unfortunately and tragically, for our country. We lost more soldiers in June than we have in any other month in nine years. I know there was a tragic, uh, tragic incident today in which Britain lost three soldiers. It appears from the news reports from an Afghan soldier who was being trained by British forces. This war is going to go on for the foreseeable future. I don't really see an end in sight until we adopt a strategy that can be more successful than the one that we have had over the last several years. And perhaps this new counterinsurgency campaign led by General Petraeus is that strategy. A global recession in two wars, but the agenda doesn't stop there. There are two countries, Iran and North Korea, challenging the United Nations and challenging really all other countries in the world by attempting to develop nuclear weapons, or in the case of Iran, a nuclear weapons capability that would upset the balance of power in the case of Iran in the Middle East to the detriment of all the moderate Arab states of Europe, of the United States, of the moderate Palestinians, and reward very few countries as Iran seeks a more dominant military position in the Middle East region. In North Asia, North Korea's continued refusal to pursue a rational policy on nuclear issues, to even cooperate with South Korea or China or Russia or Japan or the United States in the Six Party Talks is deeply disturbing. And so you have two considerable powers in their destructive capacity, not in their economic portfolio, with the ability to cause mayhem in arguably the two most vital regions of the world, Asia and the Middle East, on the loose. And there's no apparent ability of the United Nations Security Council or any other group of powers to stop them at the present time. So global recession, two wars, Iran and North Korea, and I haven't even touched on what I think is the heart of the international agenda and the heart of the challenges, the problems produced by globalization. Now, I'll be the first person to say, as Tom Friedman has done so frequently in his brilliant books, as Tom has said, there's a bright side to globalization. There are all sorts of great things happening in the world, in science, in medicine, in our ability to cure diseases that before had not been curable, with technological growth, with the information age, there are wonderful things happening, positive. But we in government, you at the LSE, have to sometimes also focus on what Tom Friedman has called the dark side of globalization. And here's the agenda. Nuclear proliferation, which is truly frightening. 
especially the thought that a terrorist group like al-Qaeda might achieve a chemical or biological or nuclear capability. All bets are off in the normally rational world of interstate politics if a terrorist group becomes capable of inflicting a biological or chemical or nuclear attack against the citizens of any of our cities or countries, any place in the world. The threat of pandemics, the threat of drug cartels or crime cartels attacking any one of us as they're currently attacking our country and Mexico along the U.S.-Mexican border at epidemic levels. These transnational problems are flowing through our borders, under our borders, over our borders. And countries, including my own, because of the, that might have felt somewhat immune from the problems of the world in recent decades or centuries, and Americans in the 18th and 19th century thought the Atlantic and Pacific will protect us, no longer in the global age can you protect, be protected from WMD threats or pandemics or trafficking of women and children, which is a scourge on every continent, in the global era. And so how does the international community, how do Europe and America and India and China and Brazil and South Africa and Indonesia and Mexico and every other country combat these problems? That gets us to the question of governance. This is a considerable problem. And I think this collection of problems makes this the most challenging time in the world, certainly in my lifetime, and as I told you, I think, going all the way back to the most destructive human conflict in human history, the Second World War. These challenges are doubly difficult because our relationship between the U.S. and Europe is in great transition. All the certainties of the past are really vanishing before eyes. Here's the first certainty that's vanishing. It was a given until about a decade or so ago that the U.S.-European relationship was all about Europe. And what I mean by that, not in a self-centered way, about the problems in Europe. At least from an American perspective, as we traced our involvement in Europe, say from 1917, when Woodrow Wilson put two million American troops into the last year of the First World War, which made a considerable difference to help Britain and France and the Allied countries all the way through to the rise of the fascist powers in the 20s and 30s, the prosecution of the Second World War when most of us were fighting together, some on the other side, through the five decades of the Cold War when my country had 300,000 troops in Europe every single day between 1948 and 1993, and all the way through the four Balkan Wars of the 1990s, that's 1917 to 1999, we Americans were a global country, but we were more focused on Europe than any other place in the world because of the problems in Europe. And largely for a positive reason, the end of the Cold War, the unification of Germany, peace in Europe, the emergence of this terrific institution, the EU, Europe's problems are largely, but not solely, not totally, resolved. And so the United States and Europe are now not focused on Europe. In our relationship, we're focused on the Middle East. We're focused on Iran and the Israeli-Palestinian crisis in Iraq. We're focused on Pakistan and Afghanistan and South Asia. We're focused on the rise of China. Will it be peaceful? Or will it not be peaceful as China becomes a great power before our eyes in the next several years and several decades? And so what's in transition is that Americans and Europeans used to have a relationship all about this continent. It's now about the rest of the world. And here's a bit of criticism. With the exception of Britain and France, in my judgment, Europe is really focused somewhat inward. And 
And I cannot see on the part of the European Union, apart from, say, a global trade policy or climate change, which are important issues. But in terms of overall global strategy, security strategy, political strategy, I can't see a well-defined European global strategy of the type that I believe is needed because I think Europe is so important in the world and we so desperately need an effective European partner, all of us, as we go forward. That's the first transition point. You have an Obama who is very much and first and foremost focused, rightly, on the Middle East, South Asia, East Asia, Africa, some of the problems in Latin America, because he doesn't see crises here. And so the question is, can we make the, if, if in the past the U.S.-European relationship was a function of what was happening in Europe, it's now a function of what's happening elsewhere. And can Europe lift its sights beyond the Danube? And in addition to constructing an ever more perfect European Union, which is a laudable goal, can Europe have a global strategy worth its salt? Not if Europe is becoming a military pygmy. And I apologize, but I think that's what's happening, with the exception, again, of Britain and France. Britain and France are expeditionary. They have the ability to use the combination of force that global strategists from ancient times to current have always said is necessary to combine diplomacy, politics, negotiation with some military muscle. Britain and France still have the capacity. Europe lacks it as an institution, in institutional form in the EU. And Europe can really only express that global policy through NATO. And so I do think that's a first challenge for all of us. Second, we need to succeed together overseas because we're facing a really profound change in how the world is ordered in terms of military, political, and economic power. China's the second largest economy in the world, will in your lifetime become the second strongest military power in the world without any question in the next several decades. I don't think, objectively speaking, it will rival the United States in military power in 50 or 60 years, but it will be considerable. And so we're facing a China that will be global in orientation. I believe India will think of itself as a global power, economically, politically, in terms of India's democratic and philosophical influence in the world. And this may surprise you, but I think Brazil will as well. Brazil maybe is gaining power faster than any other major country in the world as we speak. It's not just the fact that they're going to host the next World Cup in four years. And apologies to the Dutch and congratulations to the Spaniards for a well-deserved victory not just because they host the Olympic Games two years later in 2016, but as an economic power, Brazil is rising very rapidly. It will become one of the largest producers of oil and gas in the world in the next five years. It has a new sense of itself, which is very positive for, my, for our hemisphere, that Brazil is playing a leading role in Haiti, a leading role in the Andes, a leading role in Central America. I find this very positive. But we Americans and Europeans have to adjust. We have to share the space, welcome Brazil, but also do something about the global institutions that we say are the power institutions. I think that beginning in 2008, the Europeans and Americans and Japanese made a smart decision. How can the G8 profess to be the most important grouping of economic countries at a time when China, India, Brazil, South Africa, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Indonesia, Mexico had been left out. And so the transition we're seeing from the G8 to G20, I think is probably 
that G8 is dead and long live the G20 is a very smart transition to democratize the power of that institution and not just to say welcome to the club, but there are dues to be paid and committees to join and responsibilities that come along with that newfound status. And here is a challenge, I think, for China in particular. China is a country that has enormous global economic influence. It needs raw materials, oil and gas and minerals to power that awesome economic growth. I think it's the fastest growth Growth over the last 30 years in China is the fastest growth rate in recorded economic history. And China's done something amazing. They've lifted several hundred million people out of poverty. But they need global resources to continue that. The question is, will China feel it has the responsibility for global governance and for the global good? I don't see much evidence of it. I see a China that's protecting Iran. You know, we have four UN Security Council sanctions against Iran since December 2006. They're Chapter 7. That means in the UN system, all members of the UN must abide by them. China may be abiding by the letter of those agreements, but along the side, it's become the largest trade partner with Iran as these sanctions have been implemented. They effectively are watering down the sanctions. They're telling the Iranians, don't worry what we're doing behind this curtain because I'll trade with you over here. What's China doing in Darfur? Not much. They didn't help Kofi Annan or Ban Ki-moon to deploy a UN peacekeeping force to Darfur to help the women and children of Darfur because China's been protecting President Bashir because China holds a major stake, ownership stake, in the state oil company of Sudan. How about Burma? China has been effectively protecting the Burmese military government, one of the world's worst military, uh, human rights offenders, and they have not put any pressure on that government to release Aung San Suu Kyi from her more than, what is it now, 12 years more of house arrest in Burma, in Myanmar. So as we see these countries take power, and they're going to have power, they also have responsibility. And that responsibility is to act sometimes out of the global good. Now, I'm not saying that Britain and the United States and France have always been selfless, selfless servants of what is right and what is good. All countries act out of self-interest. But it's also true that the European Union is the largest donor of assistance to poor people in the world. The European Union and the European peoples. And the United States as a society in terms of our private and public giving is not far behind. And you know, George W. Bush and the Democratic Congress launched a $30 billion HIV AIDS program, global. We don't see that from China. And I just hope we will see it from China as China takes power. And I think it's a European-American concern that we should see that same degree of responsibility about global affairs from China and others as we have, as we have shown. What can we do, be my final concluding thought, as European-Americans to deal with this vast array of problems that I've thrown out at you? this really forbidding foreign policy agenda that all of us are facing. I think a couple of things. First is to get our economic houses in order. I admire Neil Ferguson, who is one of Britain's, I think, most prolific and impressive historians. He spends part of his year with us at Harvard University. Neil wrote an article in Foreign Affairs, the US publication, a couple of months ago, explaining why empires fall. 
it's not always because barbarians are knocking at the gate, as Neil has said. It's because sometimes we atrophy from within. Empires over history. We can't afford a modern state or an army or social welfare programs. The United States is facing historically crippling economic problems if we don't get our house in order. I think that's what I'm hearing as I look at the actions of Chancellor Merkel and the other EU leaders as you face your economic problems. The first thing we can do to remain economically vibrant, politically vibrant, militarily strong, is to, be, is, is to sustain that economic base and shore it up and deal in a very aggressive way with our economic problems. Now the issue here from the last G20 summit is that we are thinking in very different terms about how to handle the current economic crisis. Uh, Chancellor Merkel may be representing the European Union as its strongest leader, its strongest economy, has been saying, cut back. And it's admirable that Germany would want to deal in an efficient way with its economic problems. But President Obama has been saying, and his economic advisors, if we want to avoid a double-dip recession, what the world had after the Depression of 31, 32 was a double-dip recession in 37 and 38, 1937 and 38. We have to spend our way out of it. There has to be dramatic fiscal stimulus by the European and American governments and China and India to produce the kind of global growth to hire LSE graduates over the next four or, four or five years and Harvard graduates. You have an ideological opposite set of arguments being put forth by the Europeans and by the Americans. I don't profess to be smart enough to know who's right and who's wrong. I'm not an economist. But when the two leading economic forces in the world are in complete disagreement about what we all should be doing to climb out of the recession, it is cause for concern. So my first suggestion, the way to resolve some of these problems, is to come together economically in terms of what we're trying to do and, and climb out of this recession and shore up our economic foundations. The second is to coalesce around some of these big problems. We've got to be more unified on Iran than we've been. I'm someone who believes that it's very important that we try to avoid a third war in the Middle East. I would not favor the use of American military force or the use of Israeli military force against Iran unless it is absolutely necessary. What I mean by that is we need to talk and negotiate with the Iranian government. But we also need to set up a, a system of penalties, sanctions, that are effective. And right now the UN sanctions are Swiss cheese sanctions. They don't have any force because too many countries are violating them. And so it's really up to the US and Europe to coalesce around some strong sanctions. And it's been very heartening to see in the last several months the European Union step forward in a very strong way to put forward additional country by country and EU sanctions against the Iranian government. We need to coalesce in Afghanistan. We need to coalesce to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict 62 years now. 62 years since the creation of the State of Israel where the Israelis haven't had, a haven't had a day of peace and the Palestinians haven't had a day of justice. How long should we want that to continue without it upsetting the entire Middle East as it has and upended stability there for a very long time. The last thing I'd say as a way to try to join forces to combat some of these problems around the world is to see each other as natural allies. 
Now, I don't know if that sounds strange or unusual that we would think of each other as natural allies. It shouldn't, because we are allies. With the exception of Switzerland and Austria, the United States is, and, fi and Finland and Sweden, the United States is allied, a military ally of 26 European countries, including all the biggest countries on this continent. We are allies. I was here in 2002, 3, 4, and 5, living in Brussels. And I saw that alliance nearly, well, it fractured and nearly shattered. And I think nearly ended in February of 2005, the month before the Iraq war started. I'm not casting blame, by the way. I'm not saying we were right and you were wrong or vice versa. All I'm saying is, may we never go back to that kind of division again. Because I think we are natural allies. We share this real commitment to democracy and democratic way of life, to human rights and human liberty, to the rule of law, to free trade, to market economics. You have a more pronounced uh, social welfare state than we do, but these are relatively minor differences in the universal scheme of things. We're a lot alike. And I think more importantly, the, the values that bring us together, we have some common interests. We ought to want to see nuclear nonproliferation not spread in the world. We should want to see the Al-Qaeda's of the world defeated, constrained and defeated. We should want to see democracy flourish where it's not flourishing now. There's no other group of countries, with the exception of Australia, South Korea, and Japan, also allied by treaty, about which we can say this. And so I do think that coming back to what binds the two continents together, North America and Europe, is a very important and I think beneficial uh, product of politics that we might be able to create, create in the atmosphere between us over the next several years. I am actually not pessimistic. It may sound that from this speech where I reviewed all these terribly challenging problems. But if you think of, there were darker days, certainly May 1940 was a darker month than any we've experienced in the last 10 years. And yet, the democratic countries, particularly the United Kingdom and the United States, overcame that dark month. And so there's no reason that the two strongest economic groupings and democratic political groupings in the world, if we coalesce, cannot face these challenges in the future and succeed. And that's my fond hope that we'll have this kind of relationship in the future. Thank you very much. I'd be happy to answer any question or to listen to any idea that you have. If you would just do me the courtesy of telling me what your name is and what you're studying, I would appreciate it. I don't know if you have microphones or not. You do have a mic. Two mics right there. Yes, sir. Yeah, my, my name is uh, Keith Raffin. Uh, I'm not studying, but I'm a former member of parliament here. I just wonder if, how, how, how where you are and uh, the State Department is that some of us here, and I say this as a former member of Parliament, and a lot of my, of my former colleagues who are still there share this view, that we are heartily sick of the use of this phrase, special relationship. Uh, we think it, we're stuck in a rut with it. We'd far rather have a phrase uh, which is more meaningful, more rational, such as candid friends. And that means that you speak to this government in the UK, for example, and say, look, we are really only interested in you 
if you, instead of playing around and footering around on the edge of Europe, are actually playing a major role at the heart of Europe. Uh, and that basically what we're interested in is, is dealing with a European Union. Kissinger's favorite famous question, who do I speak to when I ring What's up the phone the number? EU? Yeah. Uh, to which the, the new foreign affairs high representative, Cathy Ashton, said, well, when you ring up, when Kissinger phones up Europe, she'll get, he'll get her answer phone, and it'll say, for Germany, press one, for the UK, press two, for France, press three. So, <clears throat> first of all, tell us, be candid to us, and perhaps we can be candid to you about Afghanistan, because actually Britain has been involved in the northwest, northwest frontier in India for 150 years, and probably we knew more about it then than we do now. But the fact is that we're fighting an unwinnable war. And anybody who knows any history uh, knows that. The two wars of, in Afghanistan in the 19th century, I mean, you can go back to Alexander the Great if you like, um, but certainly the Soviet occupation, the, this is a very porous border, it's a very unwinnable war. Those are just the two points I'd make. I think we have a major problem with the Eurozone, by, by the way. I accept your nice words about the EU, but the Eurozone is a major crisis, as Paul Volcker said on this actual platform just a month ago. Thank you very much. A lot to comment on. I'm sorry to insult you with my choice of words, special relationship. I thought there might be some Brits who would think that was a good thing, but maybe not. Um, let me just say one thing about the EU. I think the EU has grown in political stature and in global political influence, actually in a considerable way because of Javier Solana. Uh, a lot of us in the US government, Clinton administration, Bush administration, I worked in both as a career diplomat, worked very closely with him. Madeleine Albright did, uh, Strobe Talbot did, Bill Clinton did, Condi Rice did, Colin Powell. And I think uh, Javier Solana was able to really uh, have Europe punch above its normal political weight. He kind of put Europe on the map. Europe became an institutional presence in more of the global conflicts than it had been. And I do see a gradual evolution in EU political institutions that would have e the EU play that role. Um, you know, it was interesting to see that the EU chose leaders this last time around that who, who were not well known globally, and perhaps e the EU would have a faster be on a faster track. I'm going to really get in trouble with you now if someone like Tony Blair <laughs> became president of the EU. So um, Europe's got to make these choices, but I think there is an evolution towards greater political power uh, of the EU. I would just like we would like more of it. We want to see Europe stronger, stronger in the world. Because the world's so complicated, no one country can hope to act alone. Unilateralism is dead in the United States. There is no rational school of thought now that says, let's go it alone. There was a school of thought to that effect about 10 years ago. But that thought, school of thought has been repudiated. So I think what President Obama is doing, and Condi Rice certainly was a Secretary of State in the second term, looking around for countries to work with because we don't want to go it alone. We are happy to share the power and responsibility. Second, in Afghanistan, I don't disagree with you in the sense that I don't see a conventional victory. There's no victory parade as there was here in London on May 8, 1945, or in Washington the same day, or in Moscow, I think a day later. There's no conventional victory that I can see. There, it, this civil war is probably going to end the way most civil wars end, through political compromise, through some kind of power-sharing arrangement, Taliban hopefully giving up the fight because they fight for a cause that is not worth fighting for, in my judgment. But we have to be smart 
about the application of both military tactics and efforts by the Afghan government to try to bring in as many, many Taliban as possible, take them out of the fight. And I, I assume that process is going ahead. I can't answer for the State Department. I retired more than two and a half years ago. And so I can only speak for myself. But I, for one, truly value Britain's role in the world. Britain is distinct, in my judgment, from the other European countries. It has a global orientation that most other European countries simply don't have or don't exercise. There's a strength of will that I find in all the various British governments. It doesn't really matter whether it's Labour or, or Conservative Lib Dem. That is global, that often is on the right side of issues or on the difficult side of issues, that I really admire. And so I will say as a former diplomat, long may the special relationship live. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you. Yes, um, way in the back. We have a mic right, coming right to you. Good evening, Professor. My name is Marcos, and well, I have also to say uh, I, I happen to be Brazilian. So during certain moments of your lecture, I almost thought that I was not supposed to be here. Uh, <laughs> but none of this. Sorry for, for the bad joke. Anyway, I just wanted to 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 ask you two simple, actually, questions. Uh, considering first a claim that Brazil has been making for seven years, I think now, since Lula has become the Brazilian president, and along with Germany, Japan, which is the concerns the reform of the UN Security Council to, to, to open it, not open it up, but uh, create more permanent seats in the UN Security Council. Right. Why is it so, happen, so, so hard to, to happen? And the, 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 the second question is also about something that's been hard to, to achieve, which is the conclusion of the door round which started back in 2001 with uh, all the countries uh, that take part in the, the World Trade Organization. And I mean, it's, it's, it's been also hard to achieve an agreement in that regard. So I wanted, I wanted to hear from you why is it so hard for that. Thank that. you. And, and thanks very much for your first question in particular. Because I think we do face a, a global, a crisis of sorts in global governance. We, the, the, the superstructure of the world political order was pretty much created between 1946 and 49, right? The European Coal and Steel Community, NATO, the IMF, the World Bank, the United Nations. The people who got power were the people who won the Second World War. And it's as simple as that. And it served, by the way, it served us very well for many decades. But we're 65 years past the end of the Second World War. And so I, I agree with, I think, where your question was going. I strongly agree that in 2010, the fact that Japan is not in the Security Council, it's the second largest contributor to the UN system, by a mile, by the way. Japan's contributions dwarf individual European contributions, or Chinese contributions, or Russia. There's not a single African country on the Security Council. That is unjust, that 53 African countries do not feel represented on a permanent basis, that India soon to be the largest country in the world by population, the largest democracy, one of the largest economies not represented. Brazil, and no Latin country represented. And so I hope that what we'll see over the next couple of years is a major effort made to democratize and enlarge the UN Security Council. And at a minimum, I would just say, but my opinion is not very important, I'm just one person, but Japan, India, an African country, the African, the African Union can decide which country. We shouldn't decide that for them. And Brazil must be part of that council. I'm sorry to disappoint any Germans here that despite the very, 
the major importance of Germany in the world. I would respectfully say that the Security Council is overloaded with Europeans. Three-fifths of the permanent members are European. And so I would not automatically say that Germany should come in if it's the price of Brazil or South Africa or Japan or India. But here's the problem with UN Security Council reform. With membership, if it does happen, and by the way, it's very difficult, it's decided by the General Assembly. So you need, a, I think the math is you need 100, or the arithmetic, you need 128 votes in the General Assembly to enlarge, to change the charter and to enlarge the Security Council, the UN Charter. So here's the problem. There, there's, a, there's a group called the Coffee Club in the United Nations. It's all the countries that don't want the likely candidates to come in. So members of the Coffee Club are South Korea, doesn't want Japan to come in. And Pakistan doesn't want India to come in. And Argentina doesn't want your country, Marcus, to come into the Security Council. And so those, the Coffee Club can gather, rally enough votes to deny any possible coalition 128 votes. So it's going to be difficult to do. But here's the real problem. Responsibility comes with membership. And so that gets back to what I was saying, I hope not rudely at all, about China. I respect and admire China, the Chinese government, but I don't see China playing the role it should as a Security Council member. So if Brazil and India and Japan come in, they're going to need to give up more of their military might for UN peacekeeping and more of their hard-earned currency for the UN development program and for HIV AIDS programs and to cure malaria. And I assume that all these countries will accept that responsibility, but it is one. And um, that's just a challenge. On Doha, I agree with you, it collapsed two years ago this summer. We desperately need to liberalize the world trade regime. I think at this point, as far as I can judge as a non-economist, there are too many differences between India, the United States, Brazil, and Europe to name just four blocks, to probably produce a victory or a success very soon if those talks get underway to resume the Doha round. But I would agree with you, the lack of it says that we, we are facing some political gridlock internationally, unfortunately. Trade is a big issue when you're in recession. We should want to liberalize it, not draw protectionist measures, but we're not doing that very well. So it's disappointing, and thank you for both questions. Yes, right here. Thank you very much. I'm, uh, my name is Mike. I'm a master's student in uh, comparative politics study in Department of, Department of Government in RCE. Uh, I have a couple of questions. First of all, uh, do you think the opinion division between Europe and the U.S. in terms of the war in Afghanistan will finally lead to the defeat of the, the NATO force in Afghanistan? That's the first question. The second one, uh, how much patience does the Americans have in dealing with North Korea and Iran in a uh, diplomatic way. Thank you very much. Thank you for those very challenging questions. On the first question, you know, I think this is a really critical moment in Afghanistan. We have changed the strategy, the NATO countries, over the last um, six to eight months. We've gone from a basic conventional strategy of, of a great use of um, I should say a large degree of the use of firepower, of particularly aerial bombing. And this new counterinsurgency strategy is meant actually to limit the amount of force. It's just to gain territory and hold it and try to bring supplies into people and to win the battle for the hearts and minds of the people. Classic counterinsurgency strategy practiced by many nations, including Britain, in places like Malaysia decades ago. 
Can that strategy succeed? I don't know. But I do know that the former strategy was not working. This shift to counterinsurgency worked very successfully in 2007 and 8 in Iraq, led by the same general, General David Petraeus, who's now just taken command in the field of the NATO forces in the last 10 days. And I, for one, believe that we should be patient, hopefully see it succeed, but give it time to succeed and not cut and run before we um, give our very best effort. Because I think it would be a tragedy for the people of Afghanistan if the Taliban took over and came back in full force. And it certainly would be a tragedy for NATO if we were defeated in the field by a far inferior force because of a lack of will. I suppose public opinion will have a lot to do with this. And I'm quite well aware that in Europe especially, public opinion is not at all enthusiastic about this war. I think it's declining in the United States too as casualties mount. I happen to agree with President Obama, what he said in our 2008 political campaign. The central front, he said, in the war against terrorism has been and will continue to be where Al-Qaeda is and they're on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. He was criticizing the decision to go into Iraq during our campaign by saying he would have earlier uh, in 2003, 4, or 5 put more effort into Afghanistan, not Iraq. I think he's right in that judgment but that would indicate to me that we cannot flag and that we've got to stay with it and we've got to see this policy to succeed because a defeat for all of us in NATO and for the Afghan people would I think be calamitous. Um, Iran and North Korea, I think uh, two very different solutions. North Korea containment by the six parties, by the five parties other than North Korea, by China, by the United States, Russia, South Korea, and Japan. Containment. That very unpredictable and I would say almost evil, and I use that word advisably, regime in Pyongyang needs to be contained, hopefully without recourse to war. Iran's very different. I said the, uh, a moment ago that I don't support right now the use of force, but I wouldn't take it off the table. I think it would be a great tactical era to say publicly to the Iranians, we're never going to use force against you. In the tough world of the Middle East, the Iranians would see that as naive, and they, I think, would take that declaration and they would abuse it by continuing to expand their own military force and to continue to build a nuclear weapons capability, which I think the whole world believes that they're trying to do. So I'd emphasize diplomacy, negotiations. We have not negotiated with Iran, we Americans, in 30 years since the Ayatollah Khomeini came to power. It's time that we had a negotiation to see if diplomacy can work. But if it doesn't work, then we're left with two very difficult choices. Do you use military power to slow down the Iranians, or do you not use military power and maybe go to a containment strategy of the type that we used against the Soviet Union in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s? That's a military strategy of itself, and it's very difficult to implement without universal support, and so there are no good options here. And I, I, I do support President Obama's emphasis on diplomacy and sanctions as the best thing to do now, but that not necessarily wouldn't be the best thing, perhaps, if, all, if that fails three or four years from now. Then I think all of us are in a tougher position. Yes, right here. All right. Uh, thank you, sir, for your very informative talk. I'm Rajat. I'm studying here at the summer school, and I'm from India. Uh, my first question is uh, that President Obama, during many of the presidential debates, 
voice the prospect of initiating talks without preconditions so so we haven't seen any of them uh, as you just mentioned that uh, us hasn't negotiated with iran in almost 30 years now and uh, my second question is about reform at i uh, in at the international monetary fund an institution that hasn't seen the presidency of a non american throughout its existence so can i have your views uh, about the change uh, in terms of representation towards decision making not just geographical but for decision making thank those you those are two very very fine questions and thank you for them on the first i would just say this i was the uh, iran negotiator for secretary rice between 2005 and early 2008 we did have a condition uh, the p5 russia china uh, britain france and the united states along with germany which was added as a sixth country Uh, said to Iran in 2006, "We'll negotiate with you if you suspend your enrichment, pro- uranium enrichment programs." That was a condition. Iran turned down all of us in 2006 and 7 because they said conditions are intolerable and insulting, and we won't respond to it. President Obama came along and removed the condition, along with Britain and France and Germany and Russia and China. They said, "Okay, now we'll negotiate 2009 without any conditions." Guess what Iran did? it refused to negotiate with the P5 so i think the f- the lack of negotiations under president obama is not the fault of president obama or prime minister cameron or chancellor merkel or president medvedev it's the fault of ahmadinejad and the iranian leadership who don't want to have negotiations clearly because they're being offered a negotiation without any conditions and they're not accepting it which should tell us all something It's very clear what they're trying to do. They want room to build up their enrichment program and to drive towards a nuclear weapons capability. And by the way, I don't think I met a single diplomat from any country between 2004 and 2008 who thought Iran was not trying to develop a nuclear weapons capability. We're not in an Iraq 2003 type situation where people debate is there a WMD in Iraq? No one's debating around the world. whether or not they're trying to become a nuclear weapons country the only debate is how do we prevent them from doing so on your second question it gets back to global governance the imf has traditionally been led by a european and the world bank has traditionally been led by an american there's a simple reason for that the europeans and americans were bankrolling the imf and world bank contributing more money to the imf and world bank and with money comes institutional power so the surest way for china india Brazil to gain power positions in the IMF and World Bank is to negotiate with the Europe the EU and the United States higher apportionment rates where those countries contribute more and if they contribute more they will I'm sure there'll be a process I'm sure we'll see Indian Chinese Brazilian leaders uh gradually assume their share of responsibilities in these institutions and I for one would welcome that for the reasons that I cited before. It's a big world. It's a difficult world. If India, China, Brazil and other countries can play a bigger role and help to resolve global problems, that's a better world. And I think it's the direction in which the world is heading anyway. So, uh I hope we'll see an evolution in a lot of these institutions towards more inclusion by formally developed con- developing countries now members of the um power class in the world, the countries that I mentioned. Yes. Um Yes, right here. Be a microphone coming right to you. 
My name is Nino. I'm the intern at the Georgian Embassy in the UK. Professor Burns, you started uh, the lecture uh, by mentioning that you have traveled in a number of countries, including Russia, and also given that you have been the director of Eurasian Affairs, um, I was interested in your insights in the interaction between the US, EU, and Russia. As you know, during the um, Russia-Georgia crisis in 2008, at the new great game, as it was called, um, yes. it reached the um, strategic crossroads, the, the interaction between the countries. So what has been the role of the EU, of the normative power and civilian power EU, in the negotiations, given that it mediated the peace agreement, deployed the EU MMM, but during the um, Geneva discussions, the agreements have not been reached. And the second question is about the um, partnership for peace countries. As you know, um, not only EU and Russia are collaborating, sorry, the US collaborating about Afghanistan. It's also Georgia contributing with 1,000 troops uh, exactly. to Kabul. So what's the perspective for Georgia to integrate into the membership action plan of NATO and the possible um, avoiding the aggravation from Russia. Thank you. Thank you very much for both questions. You know, we could, I'm sure you probably have a course at the LSC on the, that cover these issues. We, we, we could design a, a whole, a full year long course to deal with the many issues that you spoke about. So I'll try to be brief. But in answer to your first question, I think there has been since the collapse of the Soviet Union, December 25th, 1991, kind of a triangular dialogue underway between Moscow, Brussels, and Washington. Brussels, of course, incorporating London, Paris, Berlin, Madrid, uh, Rome, other countries, Warsaw more recently. <coughs> and it's been very useful because um, we've taken so many steps away from war since the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, before you came here, before many of you were born, we had five decades of Cold War where a single mistake could have led to a nuclear conflict or a third continental war in Europe. And thank heavens, thank goodness that we avoided that. And so we've seen the level of nuclear weapons come down between the US and Russia. And President Obama and President Medvedev just signed another treaty to further reduce offensive nuclear weapons. Good thing. We've seen nuclear confidence grow. What I mean by that is the control of the nuclear material and weaponry in Russia has been strengthened since the chaotic days following the collapse of the Soviet Union, when that was a great concern of Europe and the United States. I would say that we must continue to cooperate with Russia to lower to zero the risk of war between Russia and Europe and the United States. Because that was so much a feature, a negative, dark feature of international politics from 1945 to 1991. Second, I think Russia is a potential partner with us on counterterrorism. Russia is a victim many times more, I think, in terms of number of terrorist attacks than we have been. And the, and the first person to call George W. Bush after 9-11 was Vladimir Putin, because I think the Russians and Americans and Europeans have felt we're all targets of radical terrorist groups, and therefore we ought to work together. That's a second way we can work with the Russian government. However, I think we have to have a balanced policy towards Russia, and your second question suggests that as well. I would hope that the United States and Europe would continue to be strong enough in the East, in Eastern and Central Europe, that Russia would not try to reimpose its will on Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, on Georgia, on Poland, on Bulgaria and Romania. 
These are all democratic countries. They are more democratic than Russia is today. They're countries that want to be or are in the European Union and NATO. And what worries me about Prime Minister Putin in particular and the Russian national security establishment is that they may not think they can conquer these countries again as they did after the Second World War and imprison them in the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union. But I think that the Russians are designing a greater sphere of influence. And that is not in the interest of the peoples of Central Europe or Western Europe or North America. So keeping NATO strong, continuing to keep NATO's door open to possible future members. Ukraine has just said they don't want to be a member of NATO. Okay, well, they won't be considered. But my view about Georgia is, and perhaps I'm in the minority here, if Georgia meets the requirements of NATO membership, which it currently does not, but let's say hypothetically it did 15 years from now, shouldn't the door be open for Georgia to join NATO? Why shouldn't Georgia be free as a democratic state to choose what groups it belongs to? Why should we keep them out? If we had had that attitude towards Estonia and Latvia, they, they wouldn't be free now. I was in Tallinn on Friday and Riga on Sunday. They were forcibly incorporated into the Soviet Union in May 1940, stripped of their national identity. They were independent states, imprisoned in the Soviet Union for 50 years, leaders sent to Siberia to be exiled, imprisoned, or assassinated. They, re they, they liberated themselves in September 1991. May they never go back to Russian influence. May they always be European, free, and democratic states. And the EU and NATO need to keep their doors open so that countries that meet the requirements, and Georgia has a long way to go to meet those requirements, in my judgment, a long way to go. But if you do, I think you should be free to join either the EU or NATO. That's just my view. It may be a minority view. But I worry about an, a return to aggressive Russian nationalism and its impact on the peoples of Central Europe and the Caucasus. So thank you for your question. Yes, sir. Yes. Hi. I'd like to ask a question about Iran. You just mentioned that, the, that Iran rejected negotiations once again with Europe and the United States. And they seem to have their nuclear program on track. So what could be done to put, like, what could the West put out so that negotiations would go back on track? And what would interest Iran so it would negotiate with the West again? Thank you. Well, my guess is a very good question, and thank you for asking. My guess is that the Iranians are not going to respond to positive entities. I think they'll respond to pressure. If we could make the UN, the current UN sanctions, more universally applied, so if China would apply them, if the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia would apply them, if Japan and South Korea would, these are all major trading partners with Iran, if they would begin to shut down trade, then I think the Iranians would have to listen to that. They would feel the pressure. They might just come to the negotiating table. But if we don't apply that pressure, and if the Iranians think they can divide the Arab countries and China from Europe and the U.S. and Canada, then I think the Iranians will have the tactical advantage. So as someone who wants to avoid a war, the only way to avoid a war is to make the sanctions tougher and to find a way to work out our problems with the Iranians through nonviolent means negotiations, to get in those negotiations. Right now, they're refusing to come to the talks. And I really think the blame needs to be put squarely on Tehran, not on you know, Prime Minister Cameron or President Obama. 
And I think pressure and sanctions is one way, way to that. Gasoline sanctions, perhaps. Iran is reliant for part of its gasoline imports. doesn't produce all the gasoline it needs. We could, the international community, could cut off gasoline to Iran. That would be a very harsh measure. But compare it to the threat of a nuclear, uh, excuse me, of a conventional war uh, with Iran at some time in the future, I think that would be something we might want to try, gasoline sanctions, to avoid a war. So that would be my way of answering your question. I think we have time for two more questions before we leave. Right here, and then, um, sir, you there. We'll start here. It's working, I think. Thank you very much. That's a really good and difficult question, and I'll try to, to do justice to it. It's a difficult one. I guess I'd say that aid and military co countries that are powerful and that want to have an impact in the world need to have both. You need to have a policy where you, reach, where you have a significant aid capacity. You need to reach individuals and help them resolve daily problems. But you also need to operate at a more strategic level through either military um, aid to other countries or in rare occurrences, and it should be rare, the use of military force. In the case of the Middle East, most governments in the Middle East would say that U.S., British, French military involvement is positive. We're a partner with Egypt and Jordan and every Gulf state because they're worrying about Iran. We're certainly a partner, a partner, military partner to Israel, and we have a commitment to Israel's security. I can't see a withdrawal of the United States, hypothetically of its military force, its military positions, its personnel, its military aid to the Middle East, I think would not help the problems of the Middle East. I think it would probably open the door to states like Iran to expand their military influence. You know, if there's a vacuum, someone's going to fill it. And I would much rather see the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Kuwait, Bahrain, the moderate Palestinians, Fatah, in Ramallah, Egypt, Jordan, the North African states have a military relationship with Britain and the United States than not have one and to be prey to Iran.
That's a very good point, and one of the reasons why I consciously did not defend the uh, decision to go into Iraq in 2003 in my remarks this evening is because I see the, the point that you're making. Ironically, and it's really tragically ironic, one of the results of the American invasion of Iraq was to empower Iran. And that is a very, very difficult thing to say because I, I think that Iran poses now a more menacing presence than Iraq ever did to the region. And so I see exactly the point you're making, but I don't think the answer is, well, then let's diminish or withdraw our military assistance to those countries with which we have been friends, Britain especially, as well the United States, for the better part of 60, 70 years in one form or another. So I guess what I'd say in answer to your good question is to say you need a balance of, of instruments to affect good policy. And I certainly would agree with you that we have been perhaps the balance has been too much with the military assistance and not enough with political and economic assistance. I'd like to see that rebalanced. But you, I think you need all those instruments of a country or the EU's power to be successful. And that's how I'd answer uh, your very good question. Last question. Yes, sir. Well, I was pointing to the gentleman in the green shirt, but if you, uh, perhaps I'll, I'll be very brief in answering both questions, and that'll do it. Um, uh, thank you, Professor Burns. Uh, my name is Roger, and I'm a student at Yale, uh, summer school here. Uh, my question is, you mentioned that um, China has not taken enough responsibility uh, in dealing with international affairs, and I do agree with you, do agree with you in part uh, in terms of uh, issues uh, with Sudan and the Security Council in Iran. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I don't think uh, China has been given enough say uh, in global institutions like IMF, uh, World Bank, etc. So um, one of the few things I learned in international relations classes is that uh, expectations cannot be realized unless some compromises are made. Uh, so my question is, uh, what kind of compromises or maybe incentives uh, America or Europe would give uh, in order to encourage China to take up more responsibilities in the issue you mentioned. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the question. It's a really important topic. I just say very briefly, I would just respectfully disagree with you, respectfully, that China's been a permanent member of the Security Council for decades. And yet China, of the five permanent members, it's my experience, um, that China is, is the least active of the five in almost every debate. And so China's had an opportunity since the 70s to play this bigger political role. I guess I could understand that in Mao's waning years or perhaps when Deng Xiaoping started his reforms, China preferred not to be in the center of things. But now, when China has so much power in Africa, in Latin America, and so much influence it needs to use it, I, I would suggest more demonstrably. Economically, I would agree with you that I would expect China and India, Brazil, as I said to Marcus's question, to play a bigger role in the IMF and World Bank, but they have to pay for it, I mean literally. They have to contribute more to support those institutions, as the US and Europe have done, to achieve that kind of status, and I suppose that, I hope that China will do that. But you know, the, China's been given a real opportunity in the G20 to play a major leadership role, and I think China's done very well in response to the global economic crisis, has been very responsible in working with Europe and America and Japan and other economies to try to end the crisis. But we have not yet seen the emergence of a Chinese development assistance program 
to poor countries, we see a lot of Chinese industrial efforts to take minerals out of countries, sometimes with Chinese labor, not with local labor. Uh, and I think that, I, I would hope that the Chinese government would reflect upon that and we'd see a change in that. So that was, that's my response to your good question. Thank you. Final question. Yes, right here. Uh, yes. Hello, my name is Alan. I'm a student of international development at the University of East London. Um, and I thought we'd finish on a slightly less contemporary question. Uh, in regards to George Bush Jr., um, you made a point earlier uh, that his administration had passed, um, well, they'd sanctioned some aid um, to help develop HIV and AIDS research. Yeah. Um, it struck me we don't actually, I don't actually know much about any other um, policies they may have had in support of international aid. And it might well be because uh, his reputation and the reputation of that administration was, uh, so we say, somewhat aggressive um, to the point where President Obama was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Some people thought just because he's not George Bush. Um, <laughs> to what extent do you think his reputation got in the way of the policies of the administration at the time? And can you give us an example of how much you think it may have got in the way, if at all? That's a really good question. I'll, I'll tr you know, it's um, a couple of points. Because I want to be fair to President Bush. You know, I, I think I told you I was a career diplomat, and I served every president, sometimes at a very low level, uh, starting with President Carter. I was an intern up to President Bush. So our ethic as career diplomats was that we were nonpartisan. You know, we voted, but we didn't tell people how we voted, and we weren't demonstrably political, because governments need that. They need civil servants who will not be political. And you all have traditions in your country, the same traditions. And so recognizing that many things went wrong in the Bush, George W. Bush administration, I, I was specific about one, the invasion of Iraq. I think it was a mistake, particularly with the benefit of hindsight, a mistake for all the reasons that we've talked about. What might he have done that was positive? I just ask you to have an open mind about this. He quadrupled U.S. economic aid to Africa. He launched this $30 billion 10-year effort with Democratic Party support, bipartisan, which is rare, uh, HIV-AIDS, which is a really great program, working with a lot of private foundations like the Gates Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates, who have been leaders in HIV-AIDS and malaria prevention. He, um, I think, resurrected and transformed our relationship with India for the better. President Bush is, being, is given credit by most Indians as having been the decisive factor in the improvement of our relations with India. And as an American, I must say, in the very dark days after 9-11, he was a very strong leader, and we all felt comfort in that in the weeks and months, September, October, November 2001. He had the support of the American people for the invasion of Afghanistan with Britain, October 6, 2011. And that was a successful war, brilliantly prosecuted by the British and the Americans and the Northern Alliance in the fall of 2001. I know that President Bush was not popular in uh, Europe. I lived here for four years through the first term. Uh, and I know he wasn't popular in many parts of the Muslim and Arab world and Latin America. But if you go to India and go to Africa and go to China, and that's a sizable part of the population of the world, President Bush is relatively well thought of. So I say this in a nonpartisan way. 
I'm a firm supporter of President Obama. Here's the last thing I'll say. That President Bush did some good things in office, and I hope that people can recognize them and look beyond perhaps where you disagree with him to say there were some areas where he moved uh, us forward, certainly as Americans, and I think did a good job for the world in those instances that I cited. But here's the last point. What I admire about President Obama is I think he recognized that there was a, if you will, a credibility deficit that our country had in those parts of the world, Europe and Latin America, major parts of the world, Muslim and Arab world. And beginning with that brilliant inaugural speech and that reference to the clenched fist, if you unclench it, I'll shake your hand. He was talking to Syria and Iran, I think, and North Korea, countries like that. And then the Cairo speech, which is a, you know, the power of rhetoric, the power of words, if, if useful, if, if brilliantly done, and Churchill was the greatest exponent of this, can transcend differences. I think Obama managed to transcend some differences when he made the Cairo speech, the Prague speech, which you may not remember, where he said, first American president, I think, in 50 years, we intend, as an idealistic goal, at some point in the future, to destroy all of our nuclear weapons. He said, America must be in favor of nuclear disarmament. I think he said, it won't happen in my lifetime, it might not happen in his daughter's lifetime. But it has to be our goal. I think when he re-articulated America to the world, our promise, our ambitions, I think he began to rebuild some of the bridges that had been shattered in 2003 and four. And so I really admire him for that, and I support him. So I've just said good things about the last two American presidents, <laughs> which is a nonpartisan person is important to do. This has been fun. Um, thank you for staying so long to listen to me, and thank you for your great questions, and good luck. Just, and again, thank you all for, for joining us and providing, and thank you to Ambassador Burns for providing a, a menu of the challenges and a practitioner's view on how to respond to some of these challenges. Thank you and, and have a good evening.